Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 46. We're recording on Friday, March 28th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Good afternoon, Mr. O'Neill. It's late afternoon on a Friday. It's an unusual recording. It definitely feels like a late afternoon on a Friday. It does. Yeah. Normally I'm like well into my second French press of coffee trying to <laughs> catch up with you. And now I'm yeah, celebrating I'm, you're, you're Friday afternoon. Down. You're winding her down. I am. I'm unwinding and enjoying a, a Boulevard wheat right. from our hometown Kansas City oh, that's, Boulevard. Yeah, that's right. Our, our hometown Co. Boulevard. Um, uh, it's a good beer. That's a fine beer. If you have, a, you can find it locally. Boulevard is tough to beat. All right, so let's get into it. Um, follow up. I mean, this is follow up to an ongoing uh, concern. Yeah, of this ours. is like a, a, a new piece in a conversation that we've been having, um, particularly strenuously for the last couple of months about right. uh, the uh, about diversity or the lack thereof in publishing and on bestsellers lists and the way that women and people of color are represented or not represented. Um, earlier this week, the folks from the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards posted on our Facebook page, and I was like, oh, what is this? I have not heard of this book award. Uh, so I went and checked out the website, which, of course, we'll have a link to in the show notes. This book award has been around for 79 years. Uh, it was established in 1935 to recognize works that address racism and diversity in human culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty fantastic mission. That's pretty good. And 79 years, and I had never heard of this. Had you heard of this? I, I hadn't. Um, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm upset, um, and I'm glad. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to know. I wonder why this is not being spoken about more. I, I took a look. You can check out past winners. Uh, this year, the five winners were uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award was given to Wilson Harris and one to George Lamming. And then there were three other books recognized. Um, one of those was A Constellation of Vital Phenomena by Anthony Mara, which was one of the biggest books of 2013. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's a novel called The Big Smoke by Adrian Mateka, which uh, I had not heard of, but I clicked on the synopsis and it sounds interesting. And then there's a nonfiction work uh, called My Promised Land, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel by Ari Shavit. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, Kevin Powers won for The Yellow Birds, which is a, a novel about the Iraq War. And Andrew Solomon won for Far From the Tree, which is about um, parents and children and what's like what's hereditary and what's not and giftedness and all sorts of things. But there are some there are some big books that uh, have received a lot of buzz on this list and also some titles that I wouldn't have been exposed to. Yeah, that's otherwise. That's, that's the thing I like about the mix is someone like, oh, yeah, there's uh, Juno Diaz. And then it's next to a couple of things I've never heard of before, um, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of the right, well, I don't want to tell them what their job is, but for this particular reader, and I'm talking about me, that's a good way to hook me because I'll sort of, there's a penumbra of trust around these books Mm -hmm. that I have heard of. Um, 
that will you know they'll apply to the ones that I haven't heard of and give me some more confidence. So Yellow Birds, Kevin Powers, like you said, last year, um, some of the big books, nonfiction, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns in 2009, but then mixed in with stuff I've I've never, to to be honest, uh, heard of. So. Um, we'll drop a link in the show notes. It's a little bit of a clunky name, so it's hard to remember, but it's the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards, and it's annisfieldwolf.org. But anyway, um, take a look at the show notes. You can always find those at bookriot.com slash podcast in the most recent episode. This is episode 46, so that's where the show notes will be there. All right. Sponsor time. So our first sponsor, Oyster's back. They're going to be with us a while, so we get to talk about them uh, at length, which is great. Oyster is unlimited ebooks for $9.95 a month. That's the easy, that's the short version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the long version is it's awesome. Wait, no, it's that's shorter. It's so awesome. That's shorter. <laughs> I messed that up. It's unlimited ebooks for $9.95 a month, and it's awesome. And it's awesome. With over 10,000 titles, with more being added every day uh, across everything. 100,000. 100, oh, what did I say? 10,000? Yeah. I was off by an order of magnitude. 100,000 titles, everything from bestsellers to classics to cult books to biographies business books nonfiction romance i'm just going to keep naming genres because you know why because they have them all there um it was the first unlimited ebook subscription model to market and they have a big five publisher on board harper collins and they've started to get some of the more um forward-looking imprints but here's the thing Rebecca and I, as part of the sponsorship, are putting together some favorite, our favorite books that you can get on Oyster. And I don't know about you, but we were supposed to come up with five or ten. Super, super easy to find enough to fill that. Oh, yeah. I had a working draft that had like 35. And I was right. like, okay, wait, how do I narrow this down and still leave room for Jeff? It took me about 10 minutes of browsing to come up with my 10. And I whittled that down to five because we're going to do a couple more of them as well. So you can read as many as you want. And as many at a time as you want. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another nice thing for 10 bucks a month. It's available now on your iOS device. If you know, if you have an iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, you can do that. And Oyster for Android is coming later this year. Um, there's a couple things that's great about it. The selection, we started with that, but one of the things that separates it from other reading um, experiences on a phone, especially in the iPad as well, is that it's got a beautiful user interface. It's probably my favorite one. Um, I haven't gone through all of the reading apps recently, but Oyster um, has been consistently the most pleasurable to use. So it's not it's got this nice wrapper, but it's also got a lot of content there behind it. Um, you can try for 30 days free of charge, go through, see what you can find, see what you like. Um, but they've got it's the thing is you only really need to read one or two a month to have it pay for itself. And one thing I've found especially like about it is that you can try things that you maybe were on the fence about, especially Mm -hmm. genres. So if there's a genre like steampunk or romance or something, if you're a reader like me who tends to read uh, mainstream literary fiction, sometimes you don't branch out as much, really no penalty if you don't like it. Give up after 10 pages, you move on to something else. It's so, I love it for that. Um, For the last couple of years, since you mentioned romance, I've been trying to, um, I just had wanted to understand what was going on in the romance genre and find some romance that I would enjoy. And that's just such a huge ocean to cast a net into if you don't know Mm -hmm. who to start with or, um, you know, where to go to get a good start for a book that you're going to like. And I think romance tastes are uh, really individual and personal maybe even more so than other fiction tastes mm-hmm. since you're talking about you know, sexy times. Yeah. 
Um, So I really enjoyed that for Oyster that, you know, some of my favorite romance authors are in there. And so I can enjoy more of their backlist, like uh, Julia Quinn and Sarah McLean. But then other writers uh, like Tessa Dare is one that someone just recommended to me on Twitter. I've never read her before. And rather than going out and buying one of her brand new, um, buying a brand new one of her books for myself and taking like a a 10 or $14 risk on Mm -hmm. her, you know, I can take a 30 minute risk on her in oyster for that flat fee. And if I love it, I'll keep going. And if I don't, I'll just move on to something else. And it's great. Yeah. For me last summer, when I was first playing with this, um, I read uh, Lois Lowry's The Giver, which you might have heard is coming out as a movie, Mm -hmm. beloved book. I just never gotten around to it. It's one of my favorites. Never really kind of thought it might be for me for whatever reason, because I'm an idiot. Um, (laughs) But I started it, loved it. And it's a relatively short book and powered through it and on to the next. Um, So, you know, Oyster is a really great way to, uh, reading on your phone, if you haven't tried that, that's another thing to say. I know Mm -hmm. you were a convert that was skeptical. You're like, I'm reading on my phone, and then you got hooked. It took like one weekend, and I was like, oh, yeah, now I love this. Yeah, I I was sort of, uh, not forced into it by by necessity, where I have a lot of, you know, weird pieces of reading time to try to uh, fulfill my uh, Jones for reading. And a lot of time I'm, you know, in line, I'm on the subway platform, um, I'm waiting between classes or something else like that, and I don't have time to, you know, break out the tablet or I just have a few minutes and I don't want to get out, but my phone is always with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And Oyster's done a really heck of a job, good job to make phone reading uh, as good as it can be. They really started with the phone version, which I thought was interesting. I thought it might be tablets since so many more people do readings on their tablet, but they, I think they realized something about how you might use this with mm-hmm. you all the time device and started with the smaller screen and got the design right there. And it's easier to make something look good on a bigger screen if you start small than otherwise. So I can't say good enough enough good things about the user experience of Oyster. So give that a try. Yeah, oysterbooks.com slash book riot. Yeah, uh, you, gotta, you can at least try. I mean, just try. You got to try it. Yeah, yeah. 30 it's days free for free. to start, you know, goof around on it, see what's there. Um, try something you've always wanted to read and then try something you've heard of, but you're like, man, I know some other people like it. It doesn't sound like sound good for me. Just give her a go. Yeah, give it a shot. If you go to oysterbooks.com slash book riot, that will let them know that we sent you. And right. then uh, sometime soon in the next week or so, our uh, top picks from Oyster will be live on that page as well. So if you land there and you really don't know where you want to start. Um, also, I've uh, found that Oyster is really responsive on social media. So if you have mm. any issues or any questions about how the service works or about titles or, or really anything, you can shout them out on Twitter and you'll get a response pretty quickly, uh, which is just sort of an extra nice thing. Yeah. Uh, they seem to really care about their customers. Um, and browsing and finding books, uh, they have they have some nice editorial sets and genre collections that I think is a pretty smart way of going about doing it. Okay, uh, let's get into the news. Oh, come, what a killjoy. I know, this I know. I, we have a you? lot of like little stories this week. Uh, Most of them are good, but this yeah, one is sad. Let's get this out of the way. Um, this right. week... A new rule bans books from being sent to prisoners in Britain. This from a story in the LA Times by Carolyn Kellogg. From now on, any man, woman, or child in prison will not be able to receive a book from the outside. Um, Says prison reform activist Francis Crook. No. Really? Oh, that <laughs> is her real. name. Look at that. Um, I don't know what the rationale <laughs> Words nearly fail me on this, one of the activists yeah, said. the... Well, what's interesting, and I sort of went digging after I read Carolyn's piece in the LA Times, is that there's not really much explanation of why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Francis Crick notes in the same 
announcement, apparently, that, quote, book banning is in some ways the most despicable and nastiest element of the new rules. So we don't know what's going on here. Um, The regulations also ban other items, including underwear, magazines, and homemade birthday cards, which... Yeah, so it... It doesn't sound. I mean, I'm sure that the uh, justification has something to do with security. I'm sure it always and, does and risk, right? But um, this is really interesting and sad. And uh, Philip Pullman and Ian Rankin and Mark Haddon, who are all uh, you know well recognized writers who live in the UK, are working on um, a, you know public discussion about this, and some petitions are going around to try to reverse it. And uh, I think. Mark Haddon, who wrote The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, puts it really well um, in the quote in the LA Times piece where he says, do you want people to be released into the community who have been retrained, who are more liberal and humane, or people who have been relentlessly deprived of the things that we all feel are important in life? People tend to think there's us, and then there are prisoners, but these are people who will be our future neighbors and colleagues. Um, And I think that's right on, and it jives with uh, some of the studies that we've talked about on recent episodes that show that um, reading does does affect our empathy mm-hmm. and, you know, makes us, uh, quote unquote, better people in some ways. Of course, that's what the headlines for those studies always say. But if that's true, then we should want people who um, have for some reason found themselves in prison to have access to to books and to any material that can uh, increase the likelihood that when they are released back into regular society, they'll be able to function more <sighs> Yeah, it doesn't say anything about extant prison libraries, of which I know in the United States that's a common um, Mm -hmm. practice. I don't know anything about the state of UK prisons. In fact, I know a heck of a lot less about US prisons, and maybe I should as a concerned and wanting to be aware citizen. But this is about sending books from the outside Mm -hmm. uh, to particular prisoners. I don't know. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of trouble and things that they don't, yeah. maybe that's about maybe just wanting more control over the books that are in maybe. the prison system. Yeah. Uh, when I worked for Barnes and Noble, we have um, some large correctional facilities here in Richmond and the store that I worked for took orders uh, for one of those. And and we frequently interacted with customers who were um, coming into the bookstore to place orders because one of the rules, at least in the Richmond area um, prisons, is that the material had to be sent from the bookstore to the prisoner. Oh, well, it couldn't, see, it couldn't go from the yeah. individual, um, which I can understand why that would be a security measure. Um, we also took, I think each quarter, we took a huge order from that facility for hundreds of new books for their library based on um, requests from prisoners mm. and uh, from what the prison librarians thought they should be bringing in for content. Um, so that was happening here, but it was interesting to see that perspective on it and to know that that they were regulating certain types of books. There were things that they would order and then call back and say, actually, we can't bring that title in because of something in the content that's been flagged as you know inappropriate. And, and because I'm a consumer of American culture, there's something there's a, there's a lot of kind of ideas about there about the possibilities of books um, to prisoners. There are two two come to mind immediately. One is the autobiography of Malcolm X, where he talks about his own sort mm. of awakening of a critical consciousness. And then there's the romance of the prison library in the Shawshank Redemption, right? Um, which facilitates education and opportunity and a whole bunch in, in, in a variety of different ways. That is, I don't know if you knew this, but that is the number one ranked um, movie on IMDb by users. Is it really? Yeah. 9.2 out of 10. Um, anyway, that's a, that's a side issue. I mean, that's I looked super that up the other day. But- how that yeah that's fascinating so anyway i think there's also a particular 
I don't know. It's I'm sure it's an idealized notion because hey, it's you know pop culture, but um, it has been instrumental in a lot of people's lives and those that have found mm-hmm. something positive to, out of their prison situation. Books, and a lot of times, are one of them. Well, yeah, and I think it might be idealized or romanticized in the in the stories that we tell about prisoners and libraries. But we feel, and uh, and now we have science that mm-hmm. that shows that reading really does affect us and it affects the way that we think about the world and it can affect the way that we interact with other people uh, if these empathy studies are accurate so it's not just an idea and so it would seem to me that sure regulate the content if you need to um interestingly the facilities in richmond would not let the prisoners order true crime novels i think we talked about this once before yeah Yeah. they couldn't be true crime sorry not novels they couldn't be nonfiction, true crime books because that might provide like a roadmap or a Mm -hmm. how-to but they ordered all sorts of crime thrillers that functionally do the same (laughs) thing in the stories yeah uh, which like that does not seem to be a useful distinction uh, to me, but certainly there's somebody, uh, you know, in a control position at one of those facilities who was drawing the distinction and who was thinking, okay, books affect people. And so which books can we allow and which ones won't we? Right. So I want to do a little follow-up and see if I can find out how this affects it, whether or not there are prison libraries in, in Britain or not, because if there are libraries that are you know, reasonably well-funded, maybe this isn't as bad as it, it mm. might seem. They could be having problems with people sending, you know, I know in the United States, for example, white supremacists are a huge presence in prisons, and one can only imagine the kind of literature they might be getting sent from um, mm-hmm. their their relatives or friends or um, associates. So I, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. I'm sure there's a reason. That doesn't mean it's a good one, but um, there's more to be learned here. Sure. And if you uh, are in the UK or you're familiar with the system and you know something about what prison libraries are like there, we would love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know. Yeah, that's our email. Okay. Let's talk so, about good libraries. I, I thought this was a really interesting piece. This is in the in the Guardian US version, and it was written by um, uh, Laura Clark, who is the head of the American Library Association, mm-hmm. uh, director, excuse me. Um, and it's about her vision for what she thinks libraries can be in this day and age. Um, and I think the, the key line I like is, to think of libraries less about repositories for books, though that will be a part of them for as long as I think we can really imagine in whatever form that book, those books are. Mm-hmm. But think of them as a spaces for community problem solving. Um, ALA believes that libraries, libraries can be community problem solvers, helping us to fully use our spaces, our people, and our technology resources. Um, or to put it another way, what can't librarians do? So they bring up that libraries have been a major resource for people signing up for new healthcare regulations in the United States. Um, They have persistent and available internet connectivity, which the stats about people that have broadband at home are still not what you would hope they would be. Um, And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what a resource the internet can be. Um, And finding necessary online information and forms, employment offices, IRS tax forms. It's amazing the thing. I went into my local library the other day. It's amazing the local services point of information um, role that my local branch library, I'm sure that's true for all kinds of places. So really trying to think forward about, you know, there is this, there's this romance we talked about before about prison libraries. There's a romance of local libraries too, that are these places where you can just go read books, which is great. Um, 
But there are other things that libraries can do, and I really like this idea of community problem solving. So it's, a, it's an article well worth reading if you're interested in libraries at all. Um, you know, they, they do, all major publishers now provide U.S. library lending of ebooks. That's one thing she was quick to point out. And last year, six libraries topped one million in ebook circulations, I think we talked about on the mm -hmm. earlier show. Um, so that's one area that we're adapting there. And as some of the space for physical books goes away, what can you do with that space? Right. I, I think it's a conversation well worth having. Absolutely. Um, she notes near the bottom of the piece that the technology revolution has created more interdependency and blurred lines around librarians' roles, um, and that we should be expecting more and not less from libraries in the digital age, um, which is right in line with uh, some of the things that the librarians that we know say online mm -hmm. frequently. We have some librarians who write for Book Riot who talk about uh, librarians' jobs not just being connecting people to the right book that will answer their question or meet their their need at the moment, but um, teaching people about new forms of literacy and helping them develop those literacies. And uh, one of those is internet literacy. Mm -hmm. how, how do you get an email address? How do you Google a question and get a good answer and then vet the uh, results that Google gives you to determine what's, what is a good answer um, and, and what's not? And mm -hmm. like you were saying, how do you sign up for healthcare if you don't have the internet at home and you're not a frequent internet user, but this is the system that you have to use to get uh, your new health healthcare stuff taken care of. I think, you know, librarians are way underrepresented or underrecognized uh, is what I meant for all of the work that they're doing beyond sort of that stereotypical surface idea that we have of a librarian as a person who just recommends a book to you. Um, and it's great that we're talking about it now. Yeah, it, you do think about it. And it is, it is very difficult to find places in one of the one of the uses that she mentions in the article is co-working space. It's very mm. difficult to find a place where you can get together with four or five other people um, that's not in somebody's home and work on a project of some right. kind, um, whether it's a community event or some sort of business endeavor where you don't have enough money yet to rent an office space or some, something else of that nature where you can have Wi-Fi and resources and quiet mm -hmm. and space and you can reserve it. Um, I know my hometown library, the Lawrence Public Library, I believe in their new building or their referred building, it's going to have some dedicated co-working spaces that you can register and sign up for ahead of time. Um, so you can have some consistent and dependable places where you can schedule time to work on something outside of your own home or your own situation, whatever that might be. So check that out. I think it's. I think that's going to be a really interesting narrative to follow. It's interesting to see that the, those at the top of the ALA um, are thinking in those ways mm -hmm. too. Yeah, um, and and just as a side note, like a thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and that I know you you're thinking about too, because we've talked about it privately, is like when we post photos of new libraries or of remodeled yeah. libraries, often to Book Riot or to our Facebook page. One of the most common refrains that we get from people is like, "Well, there aren't enough books in that mm -hmm. library," and you know, that might be the book lover's first response when you're looking at a photo of a library. You want to see that like romanticized Beauty and the Beast, like giant multiple story <laughs> room. Right. With sliding ladders and you know singing uh, china mm -hmm. that's there but uh, the libraries of today and increasingly the libraries of the future are going to have fewer books in them and and libraries with fewer books that but that make spaces for things like co-working and um digital literacy and that kind of activity will be the ones that we you know should be celebrating the most yeah so let's let's move on um to another thing that we like about the future 
And this, this is very cool. Um, this is very cool. You want to take this one? I took the last one. You I do want to take yeah, this one. I, I, have a, I have a personal connection I was gonna say, yeah. to this one. Um, CNN released a list earlier this week of their 10 visionary women. And um, they're, they're looking, they said they brainstormed and networked to find women who might not be household names, but whose efforts will change what women can do from home to the C-suite, uh, you know, to executive levels in, in corporations. These women operate inside the United States and beyond its borders. Their ideas are in varying stages of development. And, and there's a little bit more about what their mission was. But one of these 10 visionary women is um, a young adult author whose name is Meg Medina and who lives here in Richmond and who is a friend of mine. And so like, all That's of this so awesome. is very cool. She's like, she is the coolest lady. And uh, it's it was insane to wake up the other morning <laughs> and see her on CNN. Uh, so we'll drop the link to the whole list. You can see all of these visionary women. They do a variety of interesting and awesome things in the world. But um, Meg writes middle grade and young adult fiction. She is uh, Cuban and she said she didn't notice the lack of character characters in books that looked and sounded like her Cuban family when she was a kid because very few writers were even having that conversation. It was just when Didn't she even was... know how blind she was. I mean it's it's a it's right. a common uh it's a common refrain. Zora Neale Hurston tells this story about how she didn't know she was black until she saw her first school picture and she was with oh, a bunch wow. of white students. <laughs> um, <laughs> wait, was it Zora? I might have gotten that I might have gotten that story wrong. Um, I'll look that up, but there's a famous story about a black author having that experience. Oh, anyway, okay. continue, continue. Yeah, so um, Meg Medina, her mission as a writer is to help bicultural and Hispanic teens to keep and to grow their identity um, by reflecting their lives in literature. She wants kids now who are growing up um, in the culture that she grew up in to be able to see people who uh, look like her, families that resemble hers, cultural traditions that are like hers in the books that they read. And she also hopes to expose other people and of other backgrounds to to her books using universal themes. Um, her newest book is called Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass, and uh, it's about bullying in middle school. Uh, and earlier this year, she was uninvited. She was invited and then uninvited from sort of a rural suburban Richmond school. Oh, af that, after, yeah, I oh, it was that. such a bad scene. After administrators looked at the cover of the book, which looks like a locker where someone has spray painted on it that Yaki Delgado wants to kick your ass, and the administrator who uninvited her uh, very tactlessly said that um, perhaps that kind of list. I'm paraphrasing, but something like uh, perhaps that kind of language would be accepted acceptable at a more inner city school, but we don't do that here. Oh, no. Okay, we got to shake that off. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah, but she was very gracious because that's how she is. Uh, and this book is wonderful. And in January, uh, Meg won the Pura Bel Prey Award, which is the American Library Association's award for Latino children's and youth authors, uh, whose work best portrays, affirms, and celebrates the Latino cultural experiences in an outstanding work of literature for children and youth. So she won that in January for this book, Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass. Um, and now lots of people are paying attention to her as they rightfully should. And she's on CNN's visionary women list. And I'm stoked that CNN has a visionary women list. It's and, a, it's a heck of a list too. I mean, we don't want to go through all, but yeah. it's worth looking at the rest of this amazing. And I'm even um, more stoked that one of those visionary women is a young adult 
writer Mm -hmm. and not just that she's a young adult writer, but that she's a young adult woman uh, writer who's a woman of color. Uh, And this last line in her profile, I just love, she says, I want multicultural fiction to no longer be considered niche fiction. It's just fiction about who's here. Hmm. Uh, So my hat is off to you, Meg Medina, and I am so proud to know you and thrilled for you. And uh, listeners, if you're looking for great fiction uh, that does all of these things, Meg Medina, she's your lady. I just need a moment to like I was stop waving say, I, yeah, my muppet Yeah, because I got to bring really you down excited. again. I got to bring you down again. <laughs> Are you done? We're just, I am. I'm you, ready. As, as, as the uh, flag uh, furled a little Let's bit. Let's just ride our tidal wave of feelings, Jeff. Um, we tr- we, I don't know if we try not to, but we we are very careful not to just talk about stuff that appears on our own site at bookriot.com. But um, our our friend and co-writer, Kelly Jensen, wrote a really great piece this week um, that rightly has been passed around quite a bit called The Censored History of Ladies in YA Fiction. Uh, and, and Kelly basically traces the censorship, the relationship between censorship of YA um, and the censorship of YA women authors, starting with S.E. Hinton's The Outsider, which she kind of traces at patient zero, as patient zero for this particular trend. She didn't publish on her full name. It's been banned a bunch of times. I didn't know S.E. Hinton wrote this when she was 18. That's another I crazy... I didn't either. Isn't that amazing? Um, talks about Judy Bloom and then goes through a whole bunch of them. Um, and the, the paragraph here, uh, I'm going to read the whole paragraph, and then we'll kind of kind of move on because Kelly, this is worth this is worth reading on its own. And there's nothing I don't think much left for us to say <laughs> beyond yeah. what she says. But she says, "Call them any name you want, but these challenges stem from the fears about girl stories coming to the front and being told. Men have their novels challenged too, but less frequently, and more likely than not, for reasons similar to why women's novels are the fear of something different, anything outside the mainstream, white, straight, male standard." Bloom has more titles on the most challenge list than any other author. Even Robert Cormier could only muster three because being female and writing about issues girls face are challenge and ban worthy actions indeed. Yep. Um, and there it is. That's, that's it. Kelly, um, set out just to write a history that's women's history month in March. And she set out just to write a history of women, uh, who wrote young adult fiction, um, and who created the category. Um, S.C. Hinton is hailed as, you know, having done that when she wrote the outsiders, uh, and she found, I think there's a great line in this piece about like when you set out to write a history of women in YA fiction, what you actually write is a history of women being censored. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, it's women that created this category, but it's male writers who are um, most frequently held up as the um, the flag bearers and the saviors of the genre, depending on which editorial you're reading that day. Um, it's a really terrific piece. Kelly did um, a lot of research and um you know, really put some serious thought into how she wanted to present it and then what this means about what we're doing uh, wrong in publishing. Right. Uh, it's, you know, we, like you said, we try not to, you know, toot the Book Riot horn too much and talk about our own stuff. But if you're going to read a thing on Book Riot, this is one of the um, pieces that really makes me uh, super proud of the writers that we work with. And I felt privileged to be able to publish it. I think um, just to go up one level, kind of a meta level with it too, it's it's always useful to think about what gets censored as that which is a threat to the society censoring it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise to me, I think, that writing about the issues young girls face is often ban-worthy in a patriarchy because we're the ones doing the bad stuff to them. <laughs> so in a, <laughs> right. in a lot of ways, it's a chronicle of our own sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one likes that to see right. that uh, in play. And 
while straight white guys write about their own problems difficult th- times too, those are normal, quote unquote, um, mm-hmm. for the society in which we live. So they're not really a threat, right? The, right. the, the, midwife, the midlife crisis of a, a 45-year-old white male accountant is not a threat to the society as a whole. But the story of a young girl and, the, and what we put young girls through in this country is a threat. And and speaking of Judy Bloom, since uh, she has more titles on the most yeah. frequently banned book list than any other author, um, what you're talking about there is, I think, absolutely right that we're banning the things that threat uh, that that pose threats to the way that to the status quo, to the way things are, and um, and to the dominant media narratives. And uh, Judy Bloom's Forever, by as one example. Um, is about a, a teenage girl. I think she wrote it in the 70s and it's been mm-hmm. updated for the modern day, but it's about uh, a teenage girl who's in her upper teens. She has her first boyfriend. They are in love uh, and she's going to lose her virginity. And she does and they have a positive experience and her life doesn't fall apart and no <laughs> no terrible things happen to her as a result of thinking about her sexuality and acting on it. And that in itself is a threatening story to tell. And uh, that's one of the common things it's brought up when people talk about why they are challenging Judy Bloom's book is, uh, well, we believe that teenagers uh, shouldn't do that or that it's dangerous and bad. And so, of course, a book that presents a teenager taking those actions and then not suffering terrible mm. consequences is threatening uh, right. to that narrative they're trying to push. Um, I transgressed and I got away with it. Right. Um, or like, maybe I didn't transgress. I just did the thing that you think is transgressing. Right. Well, it yeah. reminds me of that scene in Invisible Man where the... Um, the uh, the patron of the black college goes out and visits and they get lost and they end up visiting this guy, true blood who it's, it's a difficult scene to understand. And I have tried my best to understand it. But the thing that always gets me is that true blood has, let's just say that his own sexual experience wouldn't be what you call normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the white patron is agog that he seems okay. Um, that he hasn't been struck down by the hand of God. Right. He's living on this small farm and a little piece of, piece of grand, uh, a land, and that all of these things that the white patriarchy has built up as being the law, the cultural law, mm-hmm. were transgressed, and there were no punishment, so to speak, from on high or from the ether. Um, it was just in his own little space, he was kind of away from the laws that um, this particular patron so heavily invested in. And it caused him to have like a massive, it causes him to have this massive breakdown because it seems like time and space and morality as he knows it have been upended, which they have. But it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scene. And one that I often think about to see people confront someone transgressing something they think is normal and good and the world doesn't fall apart. Right, <laughs> Things they... aren't uh, a catastrophe. Um, the sun keeps shining and birds keep chirping uh, at any rate. So Right, and so it, for many reasons, that scene being one of them, Invisible Man is also frequently challenged. Oh, all the, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, there's uh, there, almost every page there's something banned <laughs> if you take uh, that sort of tact with it. Okay, um, let's go on to our next story. A big piece in the New York Times this week that got passed around a lot because talk about um, – an instance of people feeling like the norm is being threatened because things are changing. Seriously, um, This is about how Manhattan, especially in New York City, is losing a lot of bookstores, primarily because the rent in Manhattan is now obscenely high. Talk about something we should ban is rents in New York, in Manhattan <laughs> especially. Um, so this is follows the the story of um, what, Sarah McNally. Sarah McNally. She a, owns McNally Jackson. Jackson uh, down in Soho. 
and was looking for, kind of the hook is he was looking for a new place to open another bookstore. She wanted to go to the Upper West Side, which has long been a bastion mm-hmm. of um, liberal intelligentsia, the people that kind, the people that buy hardcover fiction in droves. <laughs> and small spaces were renting for 40000 bucks or more a month, <sighs> which... That's just insane. It's ins- I mean, I've been in New York for 14 years now, and I've sort of followed it. So I'm not surprised to see that number. But if you're not used to what Manhattan real estate does, that's a stunning number. And mm-hmm. a bookstore really can't, even a robust literary hardcover market has a hard time sustaining that. Whenever you have you to pick sell the- a huge heaping crap ton of books. Yeah, I mean. Every month. <laughs> yeah, it, you'd have to sell four, you have to sell, you know, you have to essentially sell. 500 books a day to cover just your <laughs> rent. Ooh, yeah, not to mention you know, paying your knowledgeable yeah, employees. Right, and insurance and all energy and all those other kinds of things. So it's talking about how Manhattan has long been the romanticized center of American literary culture. I say romanticized because that can mean it is or it isn't. But I we can certainly like, think feel about the quotation marks yeah, around I, it. I, my voice italicized it. Um, and there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. Robert Cairo, um, the, one of the great biographers of our age, is, you know, the world is changing and it's now becoming a literary desert. Um, and I just don't care. Yeah, I told you <laughs> earlier, I was having a hard time finding poops to give about mm-hmm. <laughs> about this. Like, yeah. you know, to censor my uh, language appropriately for podcast land. It's I just think you have to question what your va- you have to interrogate your values about books and publishing and literary culture before you decide that this is really a problem. Mm-hmm. If you live in Manhattan and you want a bunch of bookstores because you actually shop in a bunch of bookstores and you're going to be sad um, that there are fewer of them, absolutely this is a problem for you to worry right. about. If you live in Manhattan and you want there to be independent bookstores because it just like makes you feel warm and fuzzy that there are independent bookstores out in the world, but you're not patronizing them and giving them your dollars on a regular basis, then you don't really get to be sad about this because you're part mm-hmm. of the reason that there are fewer bookstores. Definitely um, the case. Um, and also, you know, if you live in Manhattan, you're no more than a 10-minute subway ride from a bookstore. I mean, the Strand, you can go to Union Square from almost anywhere in Manhattan, you can get to the Strand in 30 minutes on a train, mm-hmm. which there's a lot of people in a lot of part of the country that don't have that option. And forget, I'm, right. and that's just forgetting about the Barnes & Nobles that are around and all the smaller bookstores. Um, that there are many of them in Manhattan still, though there's, there's a lot less than there, excuse me, a lot fewer than there used to be. And... Um, This also, being upset about this also assumes that a Manhattan or a world with fewer bookstores is also somehow a world with fewer books or fewer readers or a less rich reading culture, um, which might be the case, but we also don't know that yet. Um, And as as the surface of the world is changing for books and readers, um, certainly more readers than ever are buying their books online rather than going places. Um, I saw one tweet, I think it was Anne Kingman, uh, who, we, who we had as a guest on the show, tweeted this week that one day earlier this week, her Twitter feed was full of people sharing uh, the dollar amounts of their settlements from Amazon. Oh, yeah, the, I got mine this week, too. price yeah. fixing thing. And then the next day, it was full of people lamenting the lack of uh, bookstores <laughs> in Manhattan and how those two things might be related to each other, Yeah, uh, which is absolutely believable. It's totally plausible that that's what's happening. Um, 
But I, I know you and I, neither of us is really concerned about the future of literary culture. Things are changing, but readers mm -hmm. still have access to books. They have more ways to get access to books than they ever have before. People who um, live in, quote unquote, book deserts where there's not a bookstore mm -hmm. or a library for miles around now can get books delivered to their homes overnight. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I, I am sad for all the romantic reasons about fewer bookstores existing in the world, but I am not worried for myself as a reader or for reading culture in general. Yeah, and um, I think it's worth saying, too, that as Manhattan has been become more expensive, a lot of the literary culture of New York has moved into the outer boroughs. Mm -hmm. So I, for my money, three of the five best bookstores in New York City are in Brooklyn. Absolutely. So it's just going to other places. Um, Generally like, speaking, Jeff, God forbid someone from Manhattan would have to go to Brooklyn to buy a book. Yeah, I know. I feel terrible for everyone in their 2,000 square foot. I mean, that's not that's not everybody. But, you know, you have to realize that um, as, a, as a real estate buyer in New York, I have very little sympathy for uh, people that choose or buy or rent in Manhattan. They, they're, 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 they're paying what they're paying for. And the kind of rent people pay for also dictate the kind of rents other people have to buy. Yep. Um, and bookstores are not a high volume or a particularly high margin business. Uh, and that's the way of the, that's the, the way of it. So, um, you know, it's, it'd be interesting to know, this is one thing I wish I knew, and I don't know an easy way to do it, uh, to correlate the demographics of the zip codes in which independent bookstores exist. Mm. Um, I, I bet we can make some uh, inferences about where those things are. Um, but they tend to be in upper middle class neighborhoods. Um, but Manhattan increasingly is just a straight up upper class neighborhood. Right. Uh, the whole thing, uh, even the neighborhoods. <laughs> the that whole island. That it, Hey, it's it's getting really insane uh, in in New York, mm -hmm. uh, or it has been insane for a while. So you know that's that's something to to figure out. Um, I think it's also it's worth noting, like if you're if you live in a town that has one independent bookstore, you probably also have a hard time feeling sorry for a city that has had dozens and is losing right. some. Right. There is that old romantic notion of being able to walk down the street in New York and there would just be sort of a bookstore there. I remember when I moved here, I kind of felt that way. And I think it was more than anything, I was spending so much time walking, I was covering a lot of ground. Mm. But back home in Lawrence, we had our one bookstore and then there was the other one across the street from it and that was it. Yeah. Um, so this idea that there was one around any corner, that's great. Um, but as I've come to get older and watch the city with something like a, a more wizened eye, I realized that was a, a young man's uh, romantic dream uh, as much as it was anything. And dreams die and we all move on. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Dreams die and we will move on. Let's move on. Let's talk yeah, about let's something just, that's just pure fun. Yeah, uh, okay. Let's tell me about this one. So Alice Monroe, who you know is a well-loved and rightfully so a Canadian writer of short stories. She won the Nobel Prize last year, uh, is going to be honored with her own Canadian coin. She'll be featured on the $5 coin, uh, and they're calling it the Alice Monroney. Oh, come on. <laughs> or at least that's what the Huffington Post is calling it. Okay. Um, but they're going to be limited edition. And I think they're only making 7,500 of these. Uh, and each one will sell for sixty nine ninety five. And this is from HuffPost Canada, uh, where, mm -hmm. where I first saw the story. So if you are in Canada and you love... Wait, is this some... official currency? This isn't one of those... 
double painted eagle with uh, Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> shooting unicorn that or something they sell on, on it. Late, late night television. You know what I'm talking about. I do know what this you're talking about. This is legit currency for all debts, public and private. Uh, let's see. The $5 coin features an open book, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it just says a limited edition silver coin from the Royal Canadian Mint. Okay. I'm going to believe that that's actually the Treasury yeah, Department. And it's not a $5. And the Mint Royal is Canadian also... RoyalCanadianMint.net uh, or something yeah, like that. The Mint is also donating $10,000 to the Writers Trust of Canada, which is an organization that supports writers in Monroe's name. Oh, okay. That's nice. So, I yeah. mean, I think that's pretty cool. Like, I was thinking if uh, the U.S. Mint wanted to give Toni Morrison a commemorative coin, I would be all over that. And we could, like, get it. We could, like, drill a hole in it and wear it around our necks. Yes. It's like the medallion of power. Yeah. That would be awesome. Uh <laughs> Like that's the, a thing now. Like the, the Orin, Tony Morrison, the Orin from the Neverending Story. Um, that's cool. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm in favor of. Uh, that's kind of one-upping people who've gotten a stamp, authors who've gotten a stamp, like a five-dollar coin. A, do you think a coin is cooler than a stamp? Yeah, you lick a stamp, you put it on trash. I oh, mean, who licks stamps anymore? Okay, I don't. I, you fancy Virginia? Maybe you have <laughs> you, stamps just fly onto the. They envelope. don't make yours pre-sticky. I think I like, bought some of those forever stamps like 10 years ago. We are like way them. down a, a side conversation. Yeah, anyway. Now, a but... coin is way better than a stamp. All right. Yeah, I would, I would save a cool Toni Morrison coin. That should be the, like, the gateway should be you have to win the Nobel Prize. I think that's fair. And then we'll fair. put you on a coin. That's totally that's fair. fair. Well, remember how they keep trying to make dollar coins a thing in America and it's just not happening? Maybe that's <laughs> just, how we should do it. That's how we do it. We make $5 coins with Nobel because you know what people care about. Is a Nobel Prize winner <laughs> for literature. literature. Well, you could make him across all fields, right? right so, um, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for his economic psychology work, and then wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, we could put him on a coin. Yes, actually, uh, a coin for an economist would really make sense. Watson and Crick, I think uh, they won the Nobel Prize for uh, for for oh, biology. Yeah, they did uh, 1954, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, for DNA. Uh, anyway, so Alison and Rooney. <laughs> At the Alice Monroney. It's you a throw thing. down five dollars uh, <laughs> with Alice Monroe's uh, embossed face on it. All right. I just need a minute for that. <laughs> In the spirit of our roller coaster of feelings, <laughs> let's go to potentially disastrous book news, Jeff. Is this potentially disastrous or just kind of weird feeling? I, it's it's hard to it's hard I think to say. It's you, weird. I think you have more trouble with this than I do, but let's talk about this. I think it's weird feeling at best, potentially okay. disastrous at worst. Okay. Uh, so Simon and Schuster later this year, um, Atria is the imprint there, is going to be publishing a Gone with the Wind prequel that's shifted perspective, which is a thing that we both generally love. Mm -hmm. um, but it's from, from the perspective of Mammy, uh, who is a, a black woman who works for Scarlett O'Hara and was played by Hattie McDaniel in the film. And this book is being written. It's going to be called Ruth's Journey. And it will be written by, I cannot find the guy's first Donald name. Donald McCaig. McCaig uh, who is a Civil War scholar. He's written um, other successful sequels to Gone with the Wind, uh, including Rhett Butler's People from 2007 and um, Scarlet. Oh, he didn't write that. Oh, no, he didn't write me. Scarlet. Yeah. Sorry Alexander Ripley wrote uh, right. Scarlet. Yeah. Uh, and this has been sanctioned by the Margaret Mitchell estate. Uh, so it's an authorized thing that mm -hmm. he that he is doing uh, i have lots of feelings about <laughs> well yeah and i think rightly so and 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 tell me if i'm wrong here but it's like you're just like this is dangerous territory to have a white guy write from the perspective of a beloved and iconic black literary and cinema 
cinematic figure, right? Yeah, it, it feels, it, it, I think it's problematic. It doesn't just feel problematic. I, I think, I believe that, that it is problematic for uh, like a 70 year old white man to be writing from a, a black woman's perspective and her voice, like, you know, that, that this is the person who's going to give her voice, um, including writing one of the sections of the book in her dialect. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I, I can't recall a time that I have read a, a white novelist do a good job with African-American dialect. Um, it's really horrible in The Help, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably the most recent example. And Roxane Gay has a really terrific essay. Um, I will find the link to it and put, the, put it in the show notes, but about um, how The Help is problematic and the dialect is one of those things. And uh, you know, people in privileged, white people in privileged positions writing to speak for um, African-American you mean like, characters. Uh, you mean is, like Margaret Mitchell? Ah, yes. I mean, well, and Gone with the Wind has its own problems, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm of two minds about it. Um, because I agree with you on one hand, like, boy, they couldn't have found... There's plenty of really talented black people out there that could write a book. Well, it says from McCaig this perspective. approached them, like, and he already has the publisher. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, and he has an in, and they were happy with his last job. So, in, in a way, I understand it. I guess what I, and maybe this is my own position, and it's something we're thinking about, but isn't the job of fiction to be able to write people who aren't you? I mean, I, maybe I'm. There, there are examples of people doing a good job of doing cross-racial writing. Um, well, if you want to go the other way, you could go James Baldwin, mm-hmm. um, right? Wrote white people great. Well, and there are men who write great women characters There's and women, women who, who write great men yeah. characters. And so I don't wish at all to to regulate or to say that no white person should ever try mm-hmm. to write a black character. But for all of the ways and reasons that Gone with the Wind is loaded, this feels like it's going to be strange possibly or mm-hmm. uh, i saw one tweet was like all i want to know is how racist will it be um that he, he might not be intentionally racist but that um you know a 70 year old white man who's a civil war scholar is bringing a certain set of values and ideas um about this work and they might not be yeah. in sync they might not be in sync with the way that this character um would be or could be or should be written by someone else um the thing that i really wonder is how many qualified black women writers have had this idea yeah. and have pitched it to their agents or their agents have pitched it to publishers and have either been ignored or rejected for it uh and in 2001 a black woman wrote a parody of um gone with the, the wind, wind called, called the wind done gone and um and it was also shifted perspective it was from a different um, black character's perspective um, from the book and she was sued by the margaret mitchell estate so like all of the dynamics here <laughs> just yeah have i mean me i think that's the, the one the part i can get behind is really this guy finally gets the job out of what must have been other people having the idea and did they look at anybody else for the job i that that's the thing i think I, i'm not going to be as quick to judge it could be a disaster mm-hmm. i totally think that's possible <laughs> but it also might not be it also might and not be a disaster. I hope it's not. Yeah, you know, I hope, I, it's, I hope not. it's not. And that all of my concerns turn out to just be, you know, worries for no reason. Um, but yeah, I was speculating on Twitter, like, did the publisher not, did it not occur to them that this would be problematic or did they not care? And you and several other people pointed out to me that like, well, this author has done other successful books related to Gone mm-hmm. with the Wind. And that's what the publisher was thinking about. So we don't know if Simon yeah. and Schuster thought about how this might be problematic and if they decided to 
ignore that in favor of what is almost certainly going to be a commercial success. The first print run of this book is 250,000 mm. copies. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you have that kind of confidence in a title to order that many initial copies, you're also going to be putting a huge amount of advertising and marketing uh, dollars behind it and publicity efforts because you've got to sell those 250,000 copies. Um, I would love to know what the advance was for mm -hmm. it. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure it's huge, and, right? Yeah, it, I just wonder how much of it is financially motivated and whether they even considered um, having someone else write it or what the potential problems would be. Like, it would be cool to read an essay from his editor. Um, I would love to read an essay by someone who else who has pitched this idea and not mm -hmm. been able to move forward with it, but who might be qualified to do that, but doesn't have the connections uh, that McCaig has. Yeah. I I'm mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty skeptical here. <laughs> I mean, I've started out really skeptical with any kind of like authorized sequel to a classic or, a, mm -hmm. you know, a, 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 a totemic book, I would say, mm -hmm. um, of, any, of any stripe. So I don't love that to start out with, especially because remember, the estate's job is to protect the shield and to make money. Right. Um, well, not their job like I gave it to them, but that's what they do. <laughs> Uh, their job isn't really to push the boundaries or rock the boat. Um, they also have this problem that this book is going to come up in the public domain in 12 or 13 years. Which will be so great. Which will be interesting, uh, assuming the law doesn't change it as, as want to do. But they need if they want to maximize the return, they need to do a couple of these. It will be interesting to see if someone takes it up after it's out of copyright and to see what people done with. We really haven't had... Oh, I think those manuscripts are sitting. Those are ready. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. We haven't had a real American classic come up uh, since Huck Finn that people have done much with. Right. Um, Finn by John Clinch, which is, a, is a Huck Finn's dad's story is the one that I can think of related to Huck Finn that's interesting at all. But, you know, we haven't had a lot of, let's say, Moby Dick altered. You know, mm. I'm surprised there hasn't one from Queequeg's point of view. Like, talk about another totemic black figure in American literature. You would think that maybe someone would have tried that, but it's not out there. So that one made me believe there hasn't been one from Jim's point of view in Huck Finn. So just because there's been this totemic black figure and Gone with the Wind, I don't know that there's manuscripts sitting there because we have precedents for major black characters that come out of copyright that's true and they and they've sat there now you know that it's a it's a fallacy of prediction to predict use the past to predict the future like that you, you don't know how things might be different um i think this figure is more beloved than either jim or queequeg is especially because of the movie mm -hmm. um and uh the actress is a beloved figure she's important in american cinematic history as well as literary history so there's another valence of interest and import that doesn't quite match up with queequeg or jim but I don't think it's necessarily the case that someone's dying to write this because we've seen this before. Anyway, um, it's certainly a fraught question. If I had my druthers, I'd like to see um, maybe someone else do it because we know from his earlier book like that, I mean, maybe it sold pretty well, but who read that? I mean, like it wasn't particularly experimental or interesting right. or progressive or anything like that. Um, so that's, uh, I mean, we'll see. You're, you're, we're not going to read this. What are we talking about? Are you going to read this? I don't know. I'm going to wait for 
other people to yeah, read it right. and then see which way the wind goes. I've actually, yeah. maybe I should confess, like I have never finished reading Gone with the Wind. Yeah, it's a tough get, it's a tough get through. It's a um, tough get through. So I don't, I am not terribly interested in Gone with the Wind as a, I think I'm interested in Gone with the Wind as a huge part of American literary culture and like you mentioned, cinematic culture. And I want to understand how that works, but um, I haven't been able to finish reading the book. Uh, So I don't know, like, if I didn't do the job that I do, if Mm -hmm. I were just reading purely for what I was interested in, I don't think I would ever be the reader for this book. At this point, I will probably see which way things go when it comes out and what the people, you know, whose opinions I trust have to say about the way that it shakes out. And I'll hope some interesting essays do come out of it. And then I might start it. I'm sure it's going to be a problem. I I mean, (laughs) after after, after hedging my bets, like my gut is kind of like, there's like, oh man. Yeah. I mean, it could, I want to hope it's not terrible, but I can really imagine it. Even if it's not like, you know, like if the thing you're hoping for is for a book to be not terrible, that's not awesome. <laughs> well, when it comes to like estate sanctioned sequels, my bar is super low. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, that just putting my my own cards on the table there. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's do our next sponsor. Hit us hit us here. Swoon Reads is back. Uh, this is speaking of how things are changing on the internet and into cool opportunities for publishing and for writers. Uh, you can go to swoonreads.com. It's a new community dedicated to readers and writers of romance uh, and uh, young adult romances in particular. And they, when they rolled out last year, they announced that um, you can submit your manuscripts, you can read other people's manuscri- manuscripts, you can give feedback and receive feedback, and they They've really uh, created this community of readers and writers who all love young adult and romance stories. And when they rolled out, they said, you know, we're going to keep an eye on things. And the best books that are submitted into Swoon Reads, we will publish. Um, Swoon Reads is run by the folks at Macmillan. And so now they're doing that. Their first title is called A Little Something Different, and it comes out in the fall of this year. It'll be a trade paperback about a sweet and completely original contemporary romance. Um, uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two college students who just don't realize that they are meant to be, uh, and it's told from fourteen different viewpoints. So if uh, if like me, that's a thing that you can't resist those rotating viewpoints in a story. You might want to keep an eye out for a little something different. Nice. Uh, but yeah, they've had tons of writers submit their um, full-length YA romance manuscripts to the site, and readers tell them which ones they like and want to see published, and then they pay attention and they publish them. It's like it's like so weirdly rational, it's hard to believe it exists. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, I mean, we've, we are down a lot on the bad ideas that publishing mm-hmm. has, and this was a really good idea right. that publishing had, and not just a good idea, but a good idea well executed. Um, the site is gorgeous, swoonreads.com. They're active on social media. They share great stuff that's not just theirs. Um, They just share great information about young adult romance titles and now new adult, uh, which is that emerging category as well. Um, And the folks behind it really love what they're doing. And I think it's cool to see this. I'll be really interested in seeing how a little something different does when it comes out. And they they said that they also have more swoon books uh, lined up and the titles will be announced this spring, uh, March and April. So hopefully soon we'll be hearing more about those. But if you're into YA romance or you're writing YA romance or both, uh, definitely something to check out where you can, you know, meet some new friends and get some feedback on your work and maybe even a publishing deal. 
Yeah, so check out swoonreads.com, and thanks so much to Swoon Reads for sponsoring the show. I think we better skip right to new books. We do. This is a good, oh man, it's oh, been a good week. A and good next week. week, like I was just looking at April, like yep. April 1st and 2nd, early next week. So many good books. We're just, we're starting to get into that sweet spot. But this week there were great books too. All of these are out now and you can read them. Uh, the first is Sleep Donation by Karen Russell. It's a novella, um, Kindle exclusive from Atavist Books, which is a smaller publisher. Um, Karen Russell's novels and other short story collections have been published by Random House. Um, but it's, I think it's really cool to see them trying something different, to see her working with an innovative new publisher. Uh, I loved this book. It's weird Karen Russell in all of the ways that it should be. Um, it's set in the 22nd century in America, where an insomnia epidemic is sweeping the country. Mm. Uh, like People are dying because they haven't gone to sleep for weeks, and their brains like short circuit, basically, and they die. And the main character who narrates the story, uh, her sister, was one of the very first people to die of this. And now she works for the Slumber Corps, uh, which is uh, the organization charged with getting the people who can sleep, the sleepers, uh, to donate their sleep to insomniacs because it's been shown that you can basically get like a sleep transfusion and it will heal you of your insomnia permanently and then you don't have to worry about this. So she is working very closely with one family that has a baby who has like pure perfect sleep. Normally if you donate mm. your sleep, they have to like filter out the weird dreams and the blips where you wake up for a couple seconds and all mm. sorts of stuff. Like Russell just fully imagines what this would be like. Um, but there's this baby who has perfect sleep and she's a universal donor, which they've never had before. And so the narrator is trying to work with her parents and keep them signed up. And there's some shady stuff going on at the slumber core and some bigger, you know, cultural things that are happening. It's just like, it's a kooky premise, but Karen Russell does so well hmm. with that. Um, and it's, you know, it's a novella. It's short. I think it's like 120 pages. Uh, totally, totally great. Um, I was having insomnia as I would like in the same week that I was reading it. And so I don't recommend that you make that connection because it'll mm. make you think you're going <laughs> crazy in the middle of the night. <laughs> like you're never going to sleep again. And then your brain's going to melt out of your ears. Uh, but it's a great read and, and I highly recommend it. Uh, and the other one of my picks that's uh, a new book out this week, uh, which I haven't read yet, but I bought the day it came out, is Three Weeks with Lady X by Eloisa James. She's one of my very favorite romance writers. And this is the newest one in her Desperate Duchesses series. Uh, but the setup is that there is a duke who is going to go onto the marriage market and he is not so fit for public interaction. So he's got to go away for three weeks uh, to Lady Zenobia, who is going to train him in all of the ways that a duke should behave properly when he's out in society society trying to woo a wife for himself. Mm. And of course, the three weeks that he spends with her, they will fall in love uh, because that's how it works in romance novels. Uh, but I love Eloisa James and I've been hearing great things about three weeks with Lady X. And so I'm excited to pick that one up too. And the next one's one of your picks. Yeah, you one of my picks. Uh, Every Day is for the Thief by, you know, I've never heard his name say it out loud. So I could be saying, uh, well, I guess I could be saying both his first and that same wrong, but I believe it's Teju Cole, but mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. It could be um, some other way of saying his first name, so I That's should have looked at it too. before. Um, this is actually his first book, which came out in 2007, but this is the first time it's available outside of Africa. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the, the one that I, my first exposure to Cole was Open City, which came out a couple years ago. 
And that is a story of a young Nigerian psychiatry resident in Manhattan. And it's him walking the city. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I loved it is, well, the writing is great. And it's a novel of ideas, but also a novel of just experiences and observations about walking the city and running into people and being in different parts of the city. But it captures that feeling I remember having of when I first moved to New York of wandering the city and sort of trying to find some way of connecting with the chaos of it. Mm. Um, there's a whole different layer here than my own experience of uh, being an immigrant and being black and um, not African-American, but a, a black immigrant and all of those kinds of things that get layered on top. Um, Every Day for the Thief is kind of a companion piece because it's about a young Nigerian who had been living in New York and then goes home to Lagos. And it has a, it seems like, I haven't read it yet, I'm going to read it, uh, it has a similar structure where the narrator moves around the city and meets people and old girlfriends and people he knows and people he doesn't know and cafes and the whole experience of kind of walking around here too. It's, 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 it's an interesting companion piece. I think it's smart. Um, of them to release it in this way. It feels like it should be a sequel hmm. to Open City because it's the Nigerian who had been in New York coming back, but it came out first. So it's there's a kind of a weird chronology here, which I'm interested to see how it, uh, it affects. This, this person has been away from Nigeria for 15 years. So it's coming home to a place that has changed even as he has changed. So some of it, it seems to me about you know, kind of the, the famous Thomas Wolfe, you can't go home again because mm -hmm. your home has changed even as you have changed. But it's still familiar and you're distant and you're close. And that weird back and forth that happens when you go back to some place that's meant so much to you over a long period of time. Um, because we don't live in museums yeah. and they change over time. And Man, he's one I am of my, so sold on this now. <laughs> uh, it's one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite authors, even just after one book. They're both relatively short. Uh, if that's a, a attraction at all, uh, it's a good trial, I suppose. Um, this one's only, I think, 172 pages. If I remember correctly, Open City was only 240 or something like that, um, 259. Uh, so Teju Cole, Every Day for the Thief, I'm interested in that, but if you haven't read Cole, I can recommend firsthand Open City. I'm pretty sure that this is going to be of the piece, but you know, for what it's well, worth, I haven't Open read that. Open City was what your favorite book of 2012? Yes. Like it's not. Yes. It is not often that you talk about really loving a book. Yeah. No, and... I, I keep my cards close to my chest. <laughs> uh, the last time I did this, I think, was this little book called Americana. Yeah. Which uh, you know won the National Book Critics Circle. I, I mean, I. Like exclamation points I on did, Twitter I about did, America. I did, I did, I did. So anyway, um, uh, that's, that, that's, 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 that's my recommendation. And uh, if paperbacks are your flavor or you're still catching up with some of the big titles of last year, two of them came out in paperback this week. One of them was my one of my favorite books of last year. It's called The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer. It's a big novel, but it's a super quick read about a group of friends who meet at a summer camp for um, young artists, for you know musicians and actors uh, and creative types. They meet when they're teenagers, and some of them are from very upper-crust families, uh, and some of them are from, you know, middle-class families. Uh, they come from these very different backgrounds, but they're at this camp together, and they form a bond, as you do uh, with a bunch of different kinds of kids when you're at a summer camp and you're a teenager, and all of your emotions are dialed up to 75. Uh, and it follows them into 
um, adulthood and then into middle age. And uh, it's one of the best novels of long-term friendships uh, mm. that I've ever read. Meg Ooh, Wallitzer. That's a good subcategory. Yeah. Isn't it? Ooh, that's she, a good one. She has, Meg Wallitzer has such a gift with uh, personal relationships in her fiction. I think she does marriages in an interesting and dynamics, dynamic and complex way. And we see some of that in the interestings as well. But um, this is about these, these friends. Some of them become very successful and other Others of them never realize creative success and have to give up that pursuit and get normal day jobs to pay the bills and wrestle with that uh, tension between their desire to to make something creative and their obligations to their families um, and what that does to their friendships while some of them are very famous and rich and powerful and others of them are just struggling to pay their bills and thinking fondly of the days when they made music or acted or painted or um, worked on movies, whatever it might be. Um, and so there, I think those are interesting things that happen in our friendships as we age and mm. uh, as our careers develop and go in different directions. You know, There's no guessing when you're 13 how any of you are going to end up, or even when you're 18 and you make uh, dear lifelong friends in college, um, what that's going to do. But she explores it just really beautifully. And uh, I, I think it's, almost, it's like a five or 600 page book. I remember reading it on a train ride and then coming home and finishing it and just sort of ignoring everything that was happening in my home for a day or two until I could complete it. It's, a, it's you know, everybody's been talking about it for the last year since it came out. And I just think rightfully so. Um, Wallitzer is frequently uh, relegated to like chick lit or women's fiction or mm. like that's a book for girls because it has a pink cover and it's about friendship. Uh, but these are issues that face all of us. And if uh, her name were like Manny Wallitzer on, <laughs> uh, and they made the cover blue, we'd be calling this like great book about lifelong friendships that everyone should read. So uh, dudes, do not let that turn you off. Mm. Also, uh, this week in paperback is The Returned by Jason Mott, uh, which if you are familiar with the ABC television series Resurrection, this is the source material. Um, I haven't been watching the show because I've read the book. Mm. Uh, but the premise is that people who have been dead for many years come back. Uh, like, they're not zombies. They're just back. Mm. Uh, they are, they show up all over the world. Like it, it first happens in the story. I think a, a couple that are in their sixties who lost a son 30 or 40 years ago when he was eight, I think he's eight, um, get a knock on the door and it's an officer from the bureau that has been set up to deal with these returned people, uh, who has their son who still looks the way that he looked when he died, when he was eight. Uh, and this town, it's primarily revolving around this one town that has a bunch of of returned people coming to it and like what would you do if someone that you had grieved and mourned over and then continued your life without just showed back up uh, but then also what would society do with these people um, and uh, the returned are treated as a different class. Uh, the churches are split between we should welcome them back. This is a miracle. And these are evil creatures of the devil. Uh, nobody really knows what to do. Uh, it's, an, it's a really interesting premise. And so if that sounds exciting to you, it's in paperback now. Great. Well, that's our show. Yep. Happy week. Friday to you, Rebecca. Happy Friday, Jeff. And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. As always, you can find us at bookriot.com. The site, since we last talked to you, got a nice little uh, up, uh, upgrade. Little makeover. Makeover. Uh, whatever preposition is appropriate for a redesign <laughs> of the website. So if you haven't been to bookriot.com in a while or ever, 
Now's as good a time as any to check it out. As always, if you want to rate the show on iTunes, that's super helpful. You can find show notes for this show. We drop links to the stories we talked about uh, every week into the show notes for that show. And you can find us at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can find our sister podcast on Book Riot, Dear Book Nerd, hosted by our, our friend um, and co-writer Rita Mead, where she talks about, it's a bookish advice podcast. About life, love, and literature. Um, and they're up to episode six. Rebecca and I were the first couple of guests, but she's had a couple of other great guests on since then. And uh, people are really liking that one as well. And I think that's it. Did I forget something? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. And as always, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Bye.